0: Do, do I really?
2: Has Scupa Palooza worn you out?
0: Listen, you know, Susan, who needs sleep? It turns out. Okay, now, wait, I've never so... had young children, but it must feel like this.
2: <laughs> I don't know that it's this uh, exciting. actually. <laughs> okay, so wait. On Friday, uh-huh. I can't even remember what day of the week it is. Uh-huh. You broke that—that the whistleblower complaint involved the president of Ukraine.
0: No, first we did that, and I think it was—I can't remember what day. First, it was that it was a presidential communication and some okay. kind of promise. And then it was that it was Ukraine. Okay. And then I've lost track.
1: And what comes next, Shane? Dun, dun, dun. I think we're all going to find out.
2: Um, Shane Harris, you are very good at your job.
0: Happy to be here, Susan. Mm -hmm,
2: mm -hmm. Welcome to the podcast.
0: (laughs) Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Rubicon Crossed edition. You like that?
1: I was thinking the drowned in the Rubicon <laughs> edition, <laughs> or the this time it's different <laughs> edition. The
0: this time, I know it's for real edition. <laughs> the don't get drowned in the
1: Rubicon edition. Have we crossed the Rubicon? away I, in can, the Rubicon. Can I just say that in, in the department, This is like an obsession of mine. People use the term "cross the Rubicon" for the wrong thing. Yeah, crossing the Rubicon me- means taking. A fateful step to undermine constitutional government. Caesar crossed the Rubicon to march on Rome, and it marks the end of the republic.
2: And this is what the listeners are here listening to this podcast about.
1: Yeah. And Roman they're all
2: history. Out there,
0: and these are smart people. They're all there saying, exactly, exactly, Nancy Pelosi, wrong metaphor, everyone wrong metaphor. We'll try and get some correct metaphors in the show today. Okay,
1: so it's not crossing the Rubicon edition. It's
0: not. Maybe it should be Rubicon cross, question mark. That's what it's going to (laughs) be. Check. That's done. Uh, I'm here in the Jungle Studio with Susan Hennessy and Ben Wittes. Hi, guys. Hey. Wow.
2: Tammy is our designated survivor. (laughs) She's
0: in a bunker.
2: (laughs) She's in a secure location, (laughs) depending on how
0: this plays out. Exactly. With canned goods. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, And Bibi Netanyahu. Yeah, exactly. Who's having a better day than Donald Trump? Wow. And who would have thought that could be possible? That is just factually
2: true, which is amazing. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, All right. Today on the podcast, I mean, what the hell else are we going to talk about? Um, So we're going to kind of break down the extraordinary moment we're in in in, uh, three segments. Uh, First, we're going to talk about... Everything we know and understand about the whistleblower allegations and Ukraine and Donald Trump, um, obviously highly informed now by a, um, a memorandum or rough transcript, if you will, that the White House put out this morning about his call uh, with President Zelensky of Ukraine. Then we'll spend some time talking about the national security dimensions of this and the foreign policy aspects of it, and then we're going to move to a talk about impeachment and try to unpack some of that. So why don't we just start with the news as it broke this morning because I think probably listeners are probably fairly well caught up at this point in the narrative. But I can go to Ben or Susan on this really. this this We can call it a transcript or call it whatever you want of this call, and I'm, I'm holding it here in my hands right now. But this five-page memorandum of telephone conversation uh, from a July 25th phone call that Trump had with Zelensky the White House put this out. I think the president has already said that he doesn't see what the big deal of it. He doesn't see that there's anything wrong with this conversation um, that occurred. But talk about what it actually shows and then let's talk about the significance of that and whether he's right that this was actually a beautiful conversation and not
1: uh, a major concern. Well, from his point of view, I'm sure it was a sure, beautiful conversation. Sure. He accomplished in it all the things I think that he meant to accomplish, which were – to uh, uh, congratulate the president of Ukraine in a friendly way and then to turn the conversation to uh, how it would really be good if the president of Ukraine, uh, if he wants that money that that we're so good as to help him with, and he doesn't say that explicitly, should – Cooperate with Attorney General Bill Barr and his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> the AG and his personal yes, lawyer, just in, to cover all the bases. In yeah. dishing dirt right. on his likely political opponent. And so I think from, from the president's uh, point of view, it was a completely cordial and normal conversation because in fact, this is the way he often talks, right? He, he in fact even talks this way publicly. Um, and so I'm sure he doesn't experience it as the grotesque distortion of the way presidential power should be exercised or may, may reasonably be exercised that people should experience it as. And yet the misconduct screams off of every line of that transcript or memorandum or whatever you want to call it.
2: Yes. Yeah, so it is a document, and again we don't know to what extent it reflects the actual conversation and and that'll be sort of relevant to fact-finding moving forward, but just the document on its face shows really astonishing abuse impeachable conduct and, and you know conduct that not just is impeachable conduct but conduct that requires impeachment right I mean we are I think people are sort of letting Republican members of Congress off the hook by saying well the Senate won't remove him you know we should be clear like what this moment demands and what the Constitution actually demands which is that if a president abuses the authorities of his office in this way and we can talk about the specific abuse moving you know in a moment um, but if he uh, if he abuses his office, in this particular way. Um, He needs to be impeached and removed from office. And that's important for the the continuing structural health of our democracy. And so... I haven't uh, had time to actually sort of see what the responses from various uh, Republican members are, particularly Republican senators. Um, but there's no person who in good faith could read this document uh, and not believe that it is a grotesque abuse of, of power, that it's impeachable and it's a violation of the United States Constitution. That said, there's a lot going on in it. And so it actually feels a little bit difficult, even whenever you read it and you just feel
1: instinctually
2: that there's that this is abusive. It's hard to sort of articulate precisely the nature of abuse. And so I think it's worth it for us to spend a little bit of time maybe breaking down the various things. Sure. So just at a very high level, I think sort of the buckets to think about it in is, number one, the question of quid pro quo. Right. So again, we don't want to exclusively focus on quid pro quo. It's not necessary. That said, it is very significant. It is; It would be a very, very serious aggravating factor if it did exist. And this transcript, there's there's information in this transcript to strongly support the inference that it was a quid quid pro quo. There's lots of contextual information to support the inference that this was an implicit or explicit quid pro quo. And there's also stuff that cuts in the other direction. So can I just
0: like dwell on one of those points for just a second for readers? I guess they haven't spent a lot of time with our listeners. The call opens with this discussion of how Trump is saying, we've been so great to you and so supportive of Ukraine. We do more than anyone else. The Europeans don't respect you. The Germans aren't giving you anything. Brzezinski says you're not only 100% right but actually 1000% right we're about to buy more javelin missiles from you and then Trump says next words yeah, this is I the... would like you to do us a favor
1: No no there's there's an intervening step okay. and it's a really important one Trump says we do a whole lot for you and there's not a lot of reciprocity mm-hmm. and then I think that's the sequence Yeah he says I would like you to do me a favor and the favor is not a favor A policy favor to the United States. The favor is a favor to him and his political interests.
2: Yeah, so I think that's right. And it's a little bit confusing because there's also sort of this this suggestion about the Ukrainians investigate the DNC server. It's a little bit hard to sort of unpack the full conspiracy theory there. And what he means there. But then there is also uh, the explicit ask that the uh, president of Ukraine investigate these allegations about Joe Biden, Joe Biden's son. Trump says that, that he uses their names. He refers yes. to it absolutely multiple overtly. Times. It's not encoded language. He says that multiple times. It's really, really clear what's being asked.
0: And talks about a U.S. ambassador that he thinks is a bad person.
2: Right. And so that gets us, I think, into, right, so so we have the quid and uh, the quo. That gets us in the, you know, separate and apart from the question of whether or not there's there's the pro in this particular document. There's also the question of he did it. In a phone call with a foreign leader – An ally that relies on U.S. security cooperation, the president of the United States asks that foreign leader to use the law enforcement apparatus of that foreign country to investigate his political opponents for political purposes, absent a criminal predicate, absent a national security purpose. And it's difficult to sort of – it can be difficult to unpack precisely the nature of that abuse. And I think Mm -hmm. the easiest way to understand it is when the president is operating in a domestic context, if he orders the FBI to investigate Hillary Clinton, right, the FBI basically says no because there are laws, there are are attorney general's guidelines. You aren't allowed, and the president is not allowed to use the law enforcement functions and the coercive powers of the United States government in order to launch investigations against political adversaries for political purposes. That's why we have all these rules about what information is necessary to predicate an investigation, how do you move forward, what does oversight look like. That's, That's the whole reason why, to avoid precisely this type of abuse but trump isn't actually using us law enforcement here he's in his capacity as the commander in chief and in his in in his exercise of foreign policy he's reaching out to a foreign government and attempting to use that foreign government Either to gin up information that could become the basis of a domestic predicate, which is lacking. There is the the FBI would not be uh, justified in investigating Biden or his son based on these allegations, which are frivolous, which have already been looked into. Mm -hmm. But. Asking this this foreign law enforcement, so either to to gin up this, this new information that could serve as a predicate or just to sort of wave this, you know, raise the specter of, well, you know, there's this foreign investigation going on. Keep in mind, Ukrainian authorities have already looked into this and determined that under their laws and their political and policy interests, this is not an investigation that's meritorious moving forward. The abuse of the rights of the United States citizen, the abuse of the Constitution is the same. Now, the rules are different and the context is different and the way we might talk about it is different, but the rights of the person in question and the violation is the same. You know, and look, the idea that the president is doing this in an area in which he's less constrained, where he's exercising his constitutional powers, actually demands a constitutional remedy because those are the available tools for policing the abuse. So it doesn't make it less serious. It actually makes it more serious. And then the final piece of this is, of course, that all of this is a solicitation for foreign interference in a U.S. election. So reportedly, DOJ, there was a a criminal referral to DOJ. Uh, Someone from the DNI reportedly and the inspector general made this referral to the FBI saying, we think this might be a campaign finance violation. This is the solicitation of a thing of value. DOJ has said a government investigation can't be a thing of value. But again, this is, you know, the Russia investigation 2.0 It is the active, overt solicitation of foreign interference in a U.S. election and another demonstration that the laws we have, which are effectively campaign finance laws, are just fundamentally not up to the task. They weren't up to the task when he was a candidate. They're certainly not going to be up to the task whenever it's actually the president of the United States doing it.
0: Okay. before I move on to talking about the next phase of this, I will just flag that uh, my colleagues and I at the Post just posted a news scoop that the acting DNI, Joe McGuire, uh, threatened to resign if the administration stopped him from testifying before Congress about this matter or tried to effectively tie so his wait, hands. So wait, this just went
1: live? It just went live. Wait, send me the link. Baby Cannon needs to boom it. Okay. We're I... making
2: history here, folks. <laughs> the first ever live podcast
1: recording. Right, which, which video does it get? I mean, you are the boom master, so I think, you'll have to tell me. I them, think this one feels like it's things are finally falling to the ground, so maybe this one gets the tower of dominoes with the tomatoes on top. I think that sounds great. All right, let's press tweet. There it uh, goes. Off it goes. All right, this is the first ever Rational Security episode with a live it's baby a, it's cannon a beautiful firing. Moment,
2: one for the history books, folks.
0: We love it. It's like we had a baby on the show. Okay. So I want to spend some time then talking about the national security dimensions of this. So we've tried to kind of get at some of the legal aspects of it and there's there's more we could talk about. But But maybe kick us off with this. Why does it matter to U.S. national security interests that the president of the United States would be asking the president of Ukraine to tackle corruption in his country and – well, we can ask. maybe we can go two ways. Is there anything wrong with him asking to tackle corruption in his country? There's probably maybe something wrong about him asking to do it uh, with regards to a political adversary. But why does this impinge upon U.S. national security interest or how does it affect it?
1: Okay. I want to break apart that question a little bit. First mm-hmm. of all, there is nothing wrong with the president of the United States asking the president of Ukraine to tackle corruption in his country. That is something that – The uh, EU has pushed for. It is something, you know, global anti corruption in developing countries is a genuine and legitimate policy priority. And if the president had said, you know, congratulations, President Zelensky, we really want to work with you, we're really excited to work with you, we want you to uh, attack. Uh, corruption, and that's our real priority for the Ukraine relationship, and we're going to help you with Eastern Ukraine, but you really need to focus on corruption. I would say that was a beautiful conversation, a perfect conversation. So that is fully consistent, and that is not what happened. What happened was he said, You know, we need you to focus on corruption, go after Hunter Biden. Now, There are many corruption problems in Ukraine. The president identified the priority corruption problem in Ukraine as one that probably isn't a problem at all, but certainly is A, self-interested, B, electorally interested, and C, vindictive in an, as Susan pointed out before, in an in a unpredicated fashion, a vindictive effort to go after the family of a political opponent. So the first point is, if the issue were really going after corruption, that is a totally appropriate thing for them to talk about. Now, why is national security threatened not by, by that, but by what he did? All right, here's why. It's really two reasons. The first is that anytime the president confuses his personal interests with the interests of the country and you conflate those, you are using the national security powers and the coercive powers of the U.S. federal government for a corrupt personal purpose. That is itself a misuse of those powers. And anytime you misuse those powers, it is dangerous. The second thing is, it's conveying an extortionate message to the government of Ukraine. Do what I care about personally instead of what is in the policy interests of the United States, which is you. this is a frontline country against Vladimir Putin's Russia. And our policy demand of this country was not, you know, let's like, clean things up so that we can help you be a, a good buffer between Russia and Europe. Our policy demand was rat fuck Hunter Biden. That's a technical term from Watergate. It's a really important technical term. This is classic rat fucking. And he demanded as a matter of U.S. foreign policy that a foreign government engage in. it. So finally, at the highest level of altitude, if foreign countries come to believe that dealing with the United States means satisfying the personal political and financial desires of Donald Trump, that will erode U.S. alliances. That is a diffuse foreign policy concern, but it is also a certain consequence. And we've already seen it happening. Uh, And so I think there's a lot of levels, not to mention still another one, which is, as Susan points out, it really undermines the predication requirements of domestic law enforcement.
2: Yeah, I think that's all.
1: <laughs> Sorry, I just kind of looked at you like, man.
2: I think that pretty much gets to it. There are a million layers to this, including, including that the Ukrainians know about this, right? And so whenever the president is engaged in flagrant corruption on a phone call, that there's another sort of dimension of uh, national security concern regarding sort of a foreign country having the ability to prove that he's engaged in this kind of information. That's certainly concerning, although I guess releasing the transcript undercuts it a little bit. There's also the really serious issue of, you know, the United States has a policy here, and and the Congress of the United States is trying to effectuate that policy by providing appropriated funds and moving in these directions. And so, you know, for the president to be subverting the public interest, the national security interest to targeting his political opponents and his own frivolous concerns, that does undermine U.S. national security. I mean, it's so it's so obvious it almost doesn't even feel like a point worth
1: making. So uh, but actually, I think Susan's earlier point that this is the Russia investigation in, you know, All of the conclusions on collusion in the Russia investigation in five short pages is also the answer to this question. So when we were saying two years ago, we have to look into whether Russia intervened in our election and whether the president collaborated in some sense with that or induced it in some sense, the concern was a concern about foreign influence. Here, five pages – it, it's, it's plain English. It's in the White House's own words, the president's own words. There's no deep state conspiracy. There's no 17 angry Democrats. There's no Jim Lyon, Jim Comey, right? This is their account of this. And it plainly establishes collusion with a foreign government to influence an election. So if you thought La Faire Russe was a threat to national security... Why on earth would you not think this is?
2: And by the way, in this transcript, Trump explicitly references that Mueller had testified the day before that that was over, that he wasn't going to be held accountable. And so he turns around and does the same thing even more overtly. And so it's also a real time lesson in what happens whenever Congress fails to hold a president accountable, fails to police these issues in any meaningful way.
0: I had a question about that, too, because. I wondered the same thing in that moment because the timing is unbelievable almost where it's like literally the day after Mueller testifies, he's doing many of the same things he was investigated for doing. Should we read that as Congress failing to hold him to account and restrain him or should we read that as the president just doesn't see that any of this is wrong and it's not about him not being chastened or restrained but he looks at it and says this isn't even a problem. I or don't are know. they related? I, mean, I don't know
2: that Donald Trump sees the world in terms of right and wrong. I actually think he is sort of an amoral operator. I mean, he doesn't appear to, to even have um, uh, sort of the ordinary conceptions of, of right and wrong, much less sort of the duties of his office. He clearly takes the approach to the United States presidency that he is going to do whatever he can get away with. And so good in the president's mind is what he wants to do and what he thinks he can get away with doing. And so... They're related questions, right? Because he takes the lesson after the Mueller testimony, uh, whether that was he was right or wrong to do that of, Yeah, they're not really going to hold me accountable for this. They did this investigation and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get away with it. And and he proceeds to turn around and do it again. But let's keep in mind, it's even more serious because in the Russia investigation, setting aside sort of volume two and obstruction, he's a candidate. He's a private citizen. He's not the president of the United States wielding the powers of the American presidency to abuse the civil liberties of a United States citizen, right? This is like... Yes, it has echoes of the Russia investigation and it's something I think people actually predicted. If this is what this guy did while he was while he was a candidate, you have no idea what he could do while he was president and so it it is just it's an astonishing abuse and I've I've honestly been trying to rack my brain for what is the right historical sort of, you know, parallel here. I don't know that it's Watergate. It's Maybe it's Nixon sort of and Vietnam negotiations. Like, I I can't quite think of what is as cynical and plainly corrupt an exercise of official power related to trying to stay in office. But if there are any others, there are very, very few of them. And so, like, this is an astonishing abuse of office. It it is beyond the pale.
1: And... And look, the ultimate evidence of that is the involvement of Rudy Giuliani, right? (laughs) If you are – We haven't even uh, talked about Rudy yet. Yeah. So, I mean, Rudy Giuliani uh, is referred to explicitly in this transcript as, you know, I want you to meet with him. I want you to, you know, cooperate with him. Rudy Giuliani is not a government official. He is not the attorney general of the United States. And the president's actually evidently aware of that because he also wants the president to deal with the attorney general. But he is sending, and this is, I think, clearly in the text, he is sending his personal lawyer out there to procure dirt. And that is basically the Trump Tower meeting, only... It's the Trump Tower meeting in which he's president and he's not offered dirt by the other side. He calls the other side and demands it. Mm-hmm. So the argument that there's no collusion or that it's just kind of he took a meeting, this is not just taking a meeting. This is soliciting the the activity.
2: Yeah. And, and let's keep it. Let's sort of put a finer point on what it's the solicitation of. It's not even the solicitation of genuine dirt, of genuine opposition research. It's the solicitation of a fabrication because he knows full well that the Ukrainians have already investigated this and determined there's nothing there. And so whenever he's telling him, you know, hey, we're we're real, real nice to you. Why don't you go take another look and see if you can't find anything else? You know, the clear implication of that is and don't come back here empty-handed, facts be damned.
0: Right. So that is actually a great transition into the next, the final segment of this, which is what is the remedy for this alleged behavior? And in some cases, not even alleged, documented. Nancy Pelosi on Tuesday evening uh, in a speech really to the American people and also to reporters said that the House is beginning an impeachment inquiry, or I guess the more precise way she put it, was that her guidance to the six committees that now are investigating the president in various forms are doing this under the umbrella of an impeachment inquiry. So, Susan, to you just briefly, does that mean that an impeachment investigation is now going? I mean, when you say – when the speaker says under the umbrella of an impeachment inquiry, that says to me we're in the impeachment inquiry phase.
2: Yes. Yeah, so – There is no formal procedural rule for like you press a giant red button on the floor of the House and you are in an impeachment investigation. And so procedurally, not that much has changed. And actually, some members of the House have even sort of criticized Pelosi and saying, well, Mm -hmm. you know, this wasn't really anything. And we thought that there was going to be something different at this point. You know, that said, things are different because impeachment is ultimately a political remedy. And it is a decision of the body of the House of Representatives to move towards this remedy and determine whether or not this remedy is appropriate. And so having the Speaker of the House come forward and say, we are now in an informal impeachment inquiry. You know, I think Ben referred to it as a press release yesterday or or a press statement, and it is, but it's a really, really significant press statement that actually – dramatically alters the dynamics, the focus, potentially the way courts will view the issues that are going to arise here. And it shifts the burdens, right? So we've seen the White House just stonewalling in response to congressional requests, refusing to honor subpoenas, refusing to provide testimony. These bizarre, ridiculous assertions of executive privilege, just basically, you can't get anything from us. And you can try and go to court, but that's going to take forever. And we're just not going to play this game. And the speaker came out and said, this is a formal impeachment inquiry. And the White House immediately produces not just the transcript, and the president had announced shortly before uh, that he was going to produce this transcript, knowing that this thing was coming, And also the whistleblower complaint to Congress. Because what it does is it's Congress saying, we're not playing this game anymore. We are demanding this information as part of our impeachment inquiry. If you don't give it to us, then the fact you didn't give it to us not only provides the substance of a negative inference that you're hiding something and that negative press reports are accurate, but itself becomes the basis of a reason to impeach you because you are now obstructing Congress. And so I think it pretty dramatically shifts the incentive structures and the justification, even though it really is just a question of political optics and momentum and attention. I actually think it's going to have a quite significant practical effect. You know, that said, you know, Ben, you referred to it as a press statement. So maybe you have a different sense.
1: So I do and I don't. Right. So I I for first of all, I don't think doing the same dance that you've been doing for six months now, and saying now we're calling it an impeachment inquiry, makes much formal difference. The posture of the committee before that was that they were doing an impeachment investigation. And for purposes of litigation, they wanted all the benefit of it being an impeachment inquiry, just without quite saying the word inquiry. And so I I think they've been trying to have it both ways for a long time and whether they will successfully have it both ways, I think is gonna you know be up to some federal judges a fair bit of time from now. And I don't think this thing's gonna be in a meaningful way decided. It'll he'll have long been decided whether he's gonna be impeached by the time a federal judge decides whether it whether it was really an impeachment inquiry for purposes of the sixe grand jury information analysis. That said, I ultimately agree with Susan for a completely different reason, which is I think the reason it really matters is that as long as you say we are not in an impeachment inquiry, we're just in an investigation, there's this activity that you're not doing Mm -hmm. and it's drafting articles of impeachment and voting on them. And, you know, the Judiciary Committee, by the way, doesn't need an impeachment inquiry to do that. It can report out articles of impeachment. So
0: she kind of cleverly stalled this a little bit, didn't she? Exactly.
1: So but as long as you say we're not doing an impeachment inquiry, it's an investigation not an inquiry. There's this, you know, kinetic activity that you're not participating in, which is writing down here is the things that Donald Trump might be impeached for and subjecting them to a vote. Of the committee and thence to a vote on the House floor. The moment you say we are in an impeachment inquiry, you gotta start writing articles of impeachment. You gotta start thinking about that. It gives a texture and form to all these hearings that you're having and all these discussions that you're having. But but
0: that's an indefinite period, though, right? I guess what I was getting at is. By saying we're in an impeachment inquiry, she kind of reins Nadler in a little bit because he's getting ahead of it. And she can say, OK,
1: everyone's covered by this impeachment inquiry, which could take months and, months and months. I don't think so. Okay, So the impeachment inquiry against Bill Clinton happened really fast and and took place really fast because here's the thing. Once you decide to do it. And two hundred and eight Democrats, as last time I checked, which was an hour or so. Two hundred and eleven now. It's two hundred eleven now. There's so, a ticker. Somewhere. And by the way, two hundred eighteen is a majority of the House. That's yeah. enough to impeach. And the remember, guy.
2: that's two hundred twelve because Justin Amash is not included in that count.
1: Okay, so you know you're getting really close to a majority of the House. The moment you are have enough votes to impeach him, why not lance the boil? Just do it get it done, so that you're not in this protracted back and forth in which your, everything you do, why not throw it in the Senate's lap and say, we think this is the reason he should be removed. And I think that's basically what the House did with Clinton. The threshold decision is, are you going to do it? The moment you decide to do it, you have some perfunctory hearings, you draft some articles of impeachment, and you make everybody vote. And that happened pretty fast.
0: And that calculation, though, it w- of – go ahead, lance the boil, impeach him, and then turn to the Senate and say, you stand up and defend him by voting to acquit. That was the same calculus in the Mueller investigation and, and, and during La Faire Reuse. So is the difference now, Susan, that the allegation here or the evidence is just so much cleaner It involves the president while he's in office? There's not you know, 78 characters like a Russian novel. Like, why this?
2: Yeah, so I think it's because the speaker is there now. So there were lots of things that came out during the Russia investigation and lots of things in the Mueller report that unequivocally merited impeachment and that the House could have responded to in a similar way by gathering this kind of support and saying, "Okay, we have now crossed the threshold and we're moving to this point. But the problem was because we had the speaker and leadership being dragged, kicking and screaming along the way. We had this stall where every time a new piece of information would be revealed, there was kind of nothing that would happen, right? It would There would be sort of some outrage statements and then nothing. And so when the American people were sitting there trying to figure out, like, okay, how big a deal is this or how big a deal is this in terms of sort of what it adds to the incremental picture, I, I think each and every time they let the moment lapse because, you know, you know it when you see it. And so I think – The opportunity of this moment is widespread public condemnation, something that is indefensible for the Republicans. And maybe Republicans in the Senate will actually vote to to acquit, but they will have to record their names for history. And they know it, and the American people know it. And it is going to be an, an incredibly ugly moment if they decide to to do this and and they'll have to be held responsible for it. And so while I don't think that the House should exclusively focus on Ukraine, there are other things that have been sort of percolating that they should also move forward with. And Ben uh, and I, along with our colleague Quinta, uh, wrote an article on this last night about sort of what the articles of impeachment should look like. I do agree. You should move really, really quickly. And the significance of the of the speaker's press conference yesterday was to make impeachment a foregone conclusion. It is inevitable at this point that the president of the United States will be impeached. And it is an open question whether or not the president of the United States will be removed from office. And anybody who begins the conversation by saying, no, nah, no, nah, you know, the Republicans, they aren't going to do this. This isn't going anywhere. It's just symbolic. I think are letting Republicans off the hook. This is incredibly serious. This is indefensible. If they decide that they want to take that step, then shame on them. But, you know, I'm willing, hope against hope, to extend a very small amount of benefit of the doubt here to what people like Richard Burr are going to say, what people like Susan Collins are going to say, are they really prepared to stand up in the Senate and say, I'm OK with this? And keep in mind, unlike the Russia investigation, where somehow there was it wasn't plausible deniability, it was implausible deniability. The president is admitting it right from day, day one, day two. Right. He's coming right out. He's giving a record. And so I, I think what he thinks he's doing is allowing his enablers and sort of the right wing media to coordinate themselves to defend him. It's actually fundamentally indefensible conduct. And so what he's ended up doing is a little bit forcing the hand and putting people in the position of kind of both not being able to retreat to their, oh, well, we don't know what's going on. We got to wait for the report. I don't know that I believe that. And... Saying, I think that this is totally unacceptable. And, you know, we literally have seen the most absurd responses to Congress. I think Ben Sass said, You'll have to talk to James in my office. It's like James, the impeachment staffer or something. So James and Ben Sass office. Like, Don't call me. <laughs> give us a call when you decide how you'd like to vote. Uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy today, an hour, like, an, again, I think it was an hour, at 30 minutes after this transcript had been released. It is leading news everywhere, pretended to have not seen it he literally was like well none of us have seen the transcript reporters like it literally it's right here we're showing and he's like i'm sorry i don't know what you're talking about like we nobody's seen the transcript i don't know familiar. how we can have this conversation um and so how long they're going to be willing to play that game is i i still think it's very much an open question and this is a very very perilous and damaging moment for the president
0: oh wow okay let's move on to object lessons does anyone have any object lessons today
1: i have an object lesson. what is it my object lesson is that bottle of Buna Hagen <laughs> that's sitting on the edge of the table. I think you may have that, used this I, as an many times. That I so times. need a swig of. So please pass it there to me. There you go, I'm Ben. Gonna, I think I'm going to have a little lesson. bit of my <laughs> object lesson here. Um, and I'd like to propose a toast oh. to the men and women. Of the Washington Post, oh, who have done you. really pretty fabulous work over the last well, couple of weeks on this story. And you. Uh, you guys have broken most of it, not all of it. Uh, the Wall Street Journal kicked your ass one day. That's true. They and did. the New York Times got one thing ahead of you. But you guys have really, really, uh, really no. carried the day.
2: Investigative <laughs> journalism, man.
0: It happens. Um, Susan, do you, you have an object? Today, so I?
2: I have one. Um, I do not Which it anything. feels like a small aside um, in sort of the <laughs> As chaos everything does. that is going on. Um, but it's a story um, by the publisher of the New York Times, an op-ed that he wrote um, entitled The Growing Threat to Journalism Around the World, mm. um, in which he makes a pretty startling revelation, which is that uh, the New York Times was very concerned about the imminent arrest or potential imminent arrest of their Cairo bureau chief by Egyptian authorities. Um, That they reached out to the Trump administration uh, in order for help, right, support from the State Department. This is very common that whenever journalists are targeted overseas and abroad, the United States government gets involved, um, and that the Trump administration refused, essentially that they were going to let a New York Times journalist be arrested on basically trumped up charges and kind of told the New York Times to go f themselves. Um, And what the New York Times ended up having to do uh, is the Cairo chief happens to be an Irish national. And so they were able to go to the Irish government. The Irish government was able to intercede uh, to actually extract this person from the country. Trump's rhetoric about journalists um, is not just rhetoric. It's not just saying fake news. It's also stuff like this, which is really, really appalling and unacceptable and scary. And I know that on days like yesterday, it's just a small footnote. But days like yesterday and today are a pretty good example of why we need to be paying attention to that. Because if we don't care a lot about press protection and about ensuring the United States government upholds its obligations to all of us, we are going to lose the ability to hold our governments accountable in really, really important ways foreign bureau reporters are very, very important as what we've seen uh, in terms of reporting on what the United States government is doing. Um, And so this is just a really, really alarming story. And and I can't say that it uh, should be front page news, you know, um, relative to everything that's been going on. But um, but it's an important story. And I I just hope it doesn't get lost in in the chaos.
0: Yeah. and, And they're extremely important, extremely vulnerable. Yeah. Do you have an object lesson Shay? I don't have an object lesson today. I feel like I've just like I've just I've, I think
1: I think you get a pass this. So week. I get a pass this you week? get a pass this. Okay, week. I'm
0: not slacking. No. Okay,
1: that's important. No. I want to get a passing grade here. Um your object lesson is the first live baby cannon blast during <laughs> <laughs> irrational security taping. Very good. Very good. Um but
0: that brings us to the end of this podcast, you guys. I'm sure we will be back here next week. No, we'll be back next week, but I, I sort of quiver to think about what the world might look like next week considering when we were on the air last week recording this, none of this stuff was known. That was and, a week ago. And
1: Shane is actually sitting here quivering
0: as he, as, as, as he says that. I'm quivering. Uh, Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can buy – can they buy like Rubicon-themed merchandise?
1: Yeah. The, there uh, There is actually a whole Rubicon section oh, good. of the of – it's, its go to – thelawfarestore.com and click on the Crossing the Rubicon section, and all of our Rubicon merch will be there.
0: All zero items. (laughs) You can follow us on Twitter at R A T L Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. We love that, and it really helps us out. Our show audio engineer this week was Jacob Schultz. The show is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Donald Trump and his cover of Either Dionne Warwick's or Beyonce's or Katy Perry's—take your pick. Deja vu. Good. That's not bad. That's good. I it. I didn't realize all those people had done a song called Deja vu.
2: Do you think I know. he feels a
0: sense of deja vu? I know I do.
2: I don't think his I think his memory is like a goldfish. I <laughs> not remember.
1: I think he may, maybe his cover of "I'll Be Seeing You." And be all seen the old you. familiar places. Indeed,
0: indeed, he will. Uh, I think Sophia Yan has deja vu every week when I bring up her name on this show. On behalf of my good friends, Susan Hennessy and Ben Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same
2: flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer.